This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Grace Lee Boggs. She is a philosopher and civil rights legend and the heart and soul of the James and Grace Lee Boggs Center to Nurture Community Leadership. I spoke with her on December 16, 2011, in her home in Detroit, Michigan. Download the MP3 of the produced show at onbeing.org. <clears throat> So this is me. Hi, are Hello. you Krista? This is not me. Hi. <laughs> I'm so glad to meet you. Good of you to come. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Hi, good to meet you. This is Rich. He's helping us with video today. Yes. I'm very appreciative. <laughs> you can take your coat too, Krista. Yeah. I brought this in case. Yes. It's really cold. So you can see. I'll put it on. So Have you been here to Detroit often? No, not often. Uh, Before? I first came here calling my colleague 30 years ago. I, in college, I came home with a friend we drove from uh, Rhode Island. And you went to Brown? I went to Brown. <laughs> I, I was born in Providence, Rhode Island. Right, I remember that, yeah. Uh, we came to do an event here months ago, and we thought we were coming to Detroit, but we were in Birmingham. <laughs> and I felt like this is not Detroit. <laughs> well, uh, I, ho- I know you have another appointment, but I hope that you'll be able to see something of Detroit. We are. We are. Yeah. Um, can we... I, I you want to get lay down the rules? We can get no closer, rules. sure. Yeah, I'd like to get a little closer. Can Rich, how much can we cheat in? And I, get, I got a little more room. Okay. Because <clears throat> this will make this is going to go away. Okay. Just if you can. Okay. You can go as close as you. Yeah. 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 Okay. Just, just feels a little far away. Yeah. For being in a living room. Yeah. So I. Uh, I sat down. By the time I'd sat down to start our interview last time, the thing I said to my colleague before I walked in was, I just wish I were sitting with her. (laughs) And so then when it didn't work out, I just took that, I seized on the opportunity (laughs) to say, we have to go. This is really tight. Are you going to be okay with Yeah. So what about head, headphones? We don't. We won't use headphones because okay. Do you need, do you need no, headphones? no, I don't. Oh, I just her, wondered no, I, if that would be. Uh, I think it's going to be. She has a hearing aid set up. That's implanted. With, uh, okay. With, well, let's okay. just try. Let's try how we hear. How you hear, Krista? How are? are oh, good morning. Uh, good are morning. Are, are you hearing me all right? I'm Is hearing it? you okay. fine. Okay. All right. Great. Uh, I interviewed Studs Turkle. When he was 93. Uh, I'm 90. I know, you're older. <laughs> you win. You but win. he had gotten to the point where he really couldn't hear. And he had to carry around a chalkboard. It was right there on 
But with him, uh, he he put these headphones on, and he was miraculously. No, I'm not doing so well. Okay. You have, your voice has gotten a little high pitched. Okay, so go, so stay down. Keep my my sexy voice. Okay. Well, I want to thank you for coming here to do it here. Mm. You know, as I get older, my phone yeah doesn't do so well. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a a boon for us, really. Okay, um, I just don't I don't want to say anything substantive <laughs> until the until the uh, tape is rolling. So that's <laughs> what I'm doing. Um, are we are can we go ahead and start talking? Two minutes, okay. Um, no, no ground rules. No ground rules. No, no guidelines. No, nothing. no guidelines. I, <laughs> I have questions, but uh, I want to have a conversation with you, and it may go places that I don't expect, and that's good. Um, we're going to try to keep it to an hour, and we'll, you know, we'll we'll just we'll have a real conversation that. Did you just have a birthday? Did you have a birthday recently? In June. In June. Oh, okay. Half I don't a know year why. ago, so I'm into my 97th. <laughs> All right. <laughs> How long have you lived in this house? Nearly 60 years. Wow. That's amazing. It was built in 1929. Uh, right over the, uh, just just west of here is east is East Grand Boulevard where the rich people used to live. Yeah. And this street was where their friends lived. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so they built houses like this with twenty feet uh, living rooms, carriage houses. Yeah. So forth. Did you move in then in nineteen twenty nine? I moved into right. this house in nineteen sixty two. Okay. I was just reading this this morning for the oh, first time, which I I almost thought I could have just read this. And have you seen uh, the next American Revolution, the book? Yes, I have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Ah, Chris, the art of video, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I, if this was just radio, we would have started. I'm a radio ago. person. <laughs> I don't need pictures, and I don't need my picture taken. And the internet has turned everything into a visual event, and I'm struggling with it. <laughs> So, Krista, one yes. of the things, um, we have two people here that are going to re- leave around 10.30. Okay. So I ask that they try to find a spot where there's a lull, and I might not hold up my hand a little okay. bit. Okay, uh, for me to just pause. Yeah, so you, we okay. don't get in a mid-answer. Where it okay. Gets yeah. All right, and we can make a call, too, if something's going on that doesn't stop, if we want to repeat it or not. Okay. 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 
Why did you go to Brown? Oh, the real answer? Uh, I grew up in a small town in Oklahoma. Oh, really? And it was very strange that I went to Brown. And honestly, I met a friend. I went to Chicago, which was the farthest away I'd been. And I'd never heard of Brown. She wanted to go to Brown. And I looked on a map and saw how far away it was from Oklahoma. (laughs) (laughs) And then I got in. I think it was kind of affirmative action because I was the only person who applied from Oklahoma. (laughs) And, uh, And, you know, it was like going to Mars. It was a huge cultural shift for me. I could have gone anywhere after that. Well, what's very interesting, I had a uh, someone who was doing a PhD at Brown was here recently, and they're studying Chinese restaurants. Oh. So that's what she's doing her <laughs> PhD at. And one of the restaurants she's studying is my father's restaurant, which was in downtown Providence, where I was born. You were born above that I restaurant, was born right? Providence, Rhode Island, on top of my father's Chinese restaurant. <laughs> Uh, well, let's start there. Um, is it and so you were born above your father's restaurant, nineteen fifteen? That's right. Um, you know, I I always ask everyone at the beginning of every interview, whether it's a quantum physicist or a theologian, um, a religious person or a non-religious person, about the spiritual background of their childhood. When I look at your story, you know, I see your mother was almost sold into slavery. Um, you were born female in a Chinese restaurant. Not, not a religious setting, but I, um, I, I, I read you talking about a rebellious nature and flourishing against the odds, almost, as a, almost also as a spiritual stance. But tell me if that's... Well, I think that... Um, it's when you live in a city like Detroit and you have that sense of industrialization and then you see de-industrialization and you begin asking yourself, what has happened? Something very fundamental has taken place. It's not just buildings that have become ruins. It's that a way of life, a way of thinking has died, Mm -hmm. and something else has been born, a new culture, a new spirit. And I think that's what you get in Detroit Mm -hmm. if you are able to look past the ruins. So, you know, maybe a place to start is uh, with these words revolution and evolution, Mm -hmm. that you started... Or at least I know you're you're Jimmy Boggs. You and you and you and your former your uh, husband were using those terms, writing about them um, in the '60s. So, I mean, maybe we could start by you know how your sense of what those words meant in the '60s, what they mean now. Uh, how, well, yeah. In the '60s, as you know, all hell broke loose mostly in the big cities, but Detroit was one of the biggest. And everybody called it a revolution. And I had been in the radical movement in 67 for close to 25 years, and I had never thought of a distinction between rebellion and revolution. And that 
outbreak, that explosion, people called, the, the media called it a riot because it was right. obviously a breakdown of law and order. Radicals in the black community called it a revolution. And then it made me think, what is the difference between a revolution and a rebellion? Mm-hmm. I never thought about it. And it, I realized that rebellion was mainly an explosion of anger, and revolution was a tremendous leap forward, a tremendous evolution mm-hmm. in consciousness and responsibility and a new way of thinking. Mm-hmm. And that's how the events of the city have shaped my thinking. And I think until one has had an opportunity to understand how language constantly has to change in response to changing events and how we are living in a time of enormous changes mm-hmm. and we, are, we have the opportunity to change our thinking, to change our philosophy by responding to and really trying to understand what's happening what time it is on the clock of the world. So, you know, one thing I, I'm so struck by in your biography is you got a Ph.D. in philosophy in 1940. Is that right? Uh, a, a Ph.D. in philosophy uh, as a woman, as an immigrant woman, I, uh, I found that amazing. And it, it, it so... Uh, y- y- What's so striking about you, and I feel one of the reasons also people are turning to you now, is how you merge this power of ideas, the necessity of thinking and ideas, as well as uh, actions and strategies for change. Well, you know, I was born in 1915, and I was in college as an undergraduate in the 1930s. And many of my friends became very radical. They flirted with the Communist Party. And I decided to drop all my classes and take up philosophy. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. I don't. If you would ask me what philosophy is or was, I would not have been able to tell you. But I, somehow I knew that we were at one of those breaking points where we had to begin rethinking things. And that gave me the opportunity to become a graduate student in philosophy, and to begin reading Hegel, Mm -hmm. who had danced around the Tree of Liberty in in 1781 as a young man, and then in 1831 had experienced the contradictions of the French Revolution and was talking about the need to expand our subjectivity and to see how... The positive has to be achieved through the labor patience suffering of the negative. Mm. And that began to give me a whole new way of thinking about change and how it develops, how it takes place. You know, that phrase, um, the, the, what did you say? The, 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 uh, I mean, here's another way you've, para- you've paraphrased Hegel and put him into your own words in a, in a public discussion, that progress does not take place like a shot out of a pistol. It takes the labor and suffering of the negative. How to use the negative as a way to advance the positive is our challenge. Well, I, you know, 
the one of the things that I learned from my father is that a crisis is both a danger and an opportunity. Mm-hmm. That's in the Chinese characters. And how you take advantage of the opportunity of the crisis, and rather than become despairing because of the danger and fearful, is something we're facing all the time, particularly at this time. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a philosophical approach, I think, that is very much needed and also alive here in the city of Detroit. It seems to me that <clears throat> thinking of it in those terms philosophically is very interesting in how it changes uh, it changes the way we might approach suffering. Right? For a religion, suffering is a problem, and and it is. Mis- I think it's mysterious. Right? This this statement that you make um, that 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 we advance through what is negative um, in our culture. We tend to think of problems as something we have to solve as quickly mm-hmm. as possible, or we don't really deal with them in a very complex way. Um, do you know what I mean? I mean, this is a big, well, big quandary for human beings. One of the things that I discovered after I came to Detroit and married Jimmy, who had been raised in Marion Junction, is that you have to make a way out of no way. Mm. And as I began looking out the window here in Detroit, where when I, when I come here, when I came here in '53, there were two million Detroiters. The the place was just booming. My husband's plant, Chrysler, employed seventeen thousand workers. And after that. Because of the technology introduced during the World War, the plant was automated and began employing 2,000 workers. Mm. And instead of booming, the neighborhood began marked with vacant lots. And what happened was that the African-American elders who had been raised in the South looked at that those lots and they saw not blight, but promise. Hmm. They saw an opportunity to grow food for themselves and the community, and they also saw an opportunity to help young people think of change and development in a more, in a slower way, hmm. rather than in terms of quick fix. Mm-hmm. And so out of the negative came this enormous positive of the urban agricultural movement, mm-hmm. And that's what you see in Detroit. Every day you can see the possibility of giving up, of moving forward, making another leap. And that is so striking about your perspective. Um, I think for many people, Detroit is a symbol of the failure of the old, right, of, of blight and of despair. And you know Detroit as a symbol of whatever the new society is that's building? Well, I think the, we have a very, most Americans have a very short-range idea of history. Yeah. They don't realize that 
the mass production only began about 100 years ago at the beginning of the 20th century. They don't realize that capitalism has only existed for a few hundred years. They don't realize that there's been a huge evolution of culture and paradigm shifts in everything, in governance, in education, in work, down through the ages. Mm-hmm. And it's that lack of a long-range view that can make you think that you that when change happens, when you see ruins and disintegration, and you see collapse, it's the end of life. Right. Right. So one of the things you've been talking about a lot recently is reimagining the nature of work. Right. I mean, the opportunity that we now have to reimagine everything, to reimagine work, to think of as as productive not only of things but of well-being, to think of governance in a different way, to think of education in a different way, what an opportunity. Mm-hmm. What a time to be alive. Yeah, but painful, right? And I mean, you're saying the pain is part that, of what part gives, of the, creates oh, the negative yeah. through which the positive emerges. So we're not only being, but we're non-being and becoming. Mm-hmm. And as you know, generations of Americans have grown up um, with jobs as they're so much a part of their identities, right? What your job is, is who you are. Uh, and I know Jimmy Boggs was working at Chrysler all of those years that you were activists and thinkers and writers uh, and social leaders. He, was, he had this job, right? These jo- jobs have defined us. Um, how do you see that? Shifting. What, what's going to change there? Well, I think the, to see that, you, you know that scene in, in Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times, to understand that under mass production, the workers appendage to the machine, mm-hmm. and that even though you are compensated by higher wages and a sort of middle-class life, something is happening to you, your humanity if you're not spending your working hours doing something that develops you as a human being. But a lot of people do work. You know, what they get paid to do mm-hmm. is in and of itself maybe not that meaningful, not developing them as human beings. Well, you know, the consumerism, the materialism of our society has been bought at a huge price, not only at the expense of the people and of the earth, but our own souls. We have lost a lot of our humanity because we have thought that higher wages compensated for being an appendage to a machine. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting things you've said, I think, one of the many, is... Um, that whereas the rebellions of the 1960s focused a lot about around the empowerment of individual identities for women, for African Americans, um, that that what we're undergoing now is more about developing a 
new kind of human identity? Uh, I mean, we, the 60s was raised a lot of very human questions, mm-hmm. but people thought more in terms of rights than in terms of advancing our humanity. I mean, that, but out of the 60s has come that opportunity to think differently. Right. Is that maybe a, a kind of Hegelian dialectic, mm-hmm. that, that the rights needed to be there in order to have the next, the synthesis of that, the next discussion, the human struggle? The, I, I, the, uh, if you look at the, uh, the T-shirt over there that Barbara has, it has revolution. Uh, evolution. But the revolution. R is bracketed, so it's revolution. And how, how that, that, I mean, to think in those terms of revolution as evolution mm-hmm. rather than as getting more power, more control, is a very more enlightened way to think. Mm-hmm. And I know that the, the Occupy Wall Street uh, people have turned to you as an elder, as, an, as, a, as a philosopher. Um, and you've been challenging, right, you t- for that movement. You've, you've talked about not being satisfied with being rebels. Uh, you've said that uh, what's important is to not, to create something that doesn't depend on exposing the enemy, uh, uh, that 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 is ultimately transformative. Well, I think we we are very fortunate to have be be experiencing the Occupy movement because mm-hmm. it's raised such fundamental questions with regard to both the economy and with regard to governance. But I do not see as yet the reimagining that needs to take place, and that we now have the opportunity to do. We held a fantastic reimagining work gathering here just a couple of months ago. Mm-hmm. And to see how the opportunity now exists in the disintegration of the industrial way of life to create another way of life that's the that that although Detroit and mass production became the symbol of progress and everybody thought this was the end of the world, mm-hmm. it was done at enormous cost to the environment, to people. And so the, its decline and deindustrialization is a great opportunity. Mm-hmm. But there's, again, this comes back to there's so much pain and loss that accompanies that that decline of what was, even if it wasn't good for us uh, in many ways. Well, was it good? Is it a terrible loss not to be able to buy a big car? Or is it an opportunity to regain our legs mm-hmm. and the sense of the the joys of walking. Excuse me. Hello? Hi, Grace. This is Val, uh, the massage therapist. Uh, I'm, kind of, I'm busy now. Could you call later? Yes, I can. Thank you. 
Yeah. Oh, you don't want to listen to the BBC while we BBC do this? Lovely. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Could that phone be unplugged? Yes, we unplugged that. Could you? Can we unplug the phone? Maybe. Even just the. Turn the ringer down. Just turn the ringer yeah. off. Yeah. Should we do something about that? Or just is there a little plug there and back? Thank you. Good. Um, okay, you just said something really great, and I think we got it, but uh, you said recovering our legs, right? Uh-huh. So that, what did you say? So can we begin walking? Or uh, you know, I, I, I drove until a few years ago, and I do not want to say that I'm against driving. <laughs> okay. But I think if you look at the Boulder City and how the, the auto industry has depopulated the city, has made us dependent upon cars, has done so much to... remove people from the streets mm-hmm. and to to the decline of neighborhoods so that people very often will drive into their garage adjoining their kitchen without even waving to the neighbors yeah. and how we have to restore the neighbor to the hood that 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 a lot of the decline of neighborhoods and of community is due to the auto industry. But, and, uh, that very disintegration of the neighborhood and of community makes it hard for us to know how to care for each other in the pain and loss that comes with people losing their jobs, losing their houses... Do you also see people in Detroit learning new ways to be there for each other in this transition, right, in the transition between the old and the new? Sitting over there is Gloria Lowe, who wrote an article called Turning to One Another Instead of Against One Another Mm. as the opportunity that has been opened up by the economic crisis. We can turn against one another, or it's an opportunity to turn towards one another. And I think we have to even rediscover the forms for that, right? Mm -hmm. Because that is also what got lost. We 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 don't know our neighbor who lives next door, much less do we know the neighbor who lives in a, in a street a few blocks down, which has been hit harder by the economic crisis. And that's a loss that's more drastic even than the loss of a job. Right. Right. To have lost our ties with one another, to have become strangers and even enemies of one another and competitors. Mm-hmm. We've lost a lot of our, our spirit. Our spirit, yeah. So I notice that that's a word you... I feel like spirit and the sacred are words 
I see you using more, at least in the writing I've seen and the speaking. Is that true? Is that an evolution for you? Well, I think what the one of the things that helped us to think more in terms of the concept of spirit was the crisis that broke out here in the 1980s after we elected our black mayor. Jobs were gone. And Coleman Young, who was a very thoughtful and intelligent man, said, we need to bring in casinos to provide jobs because jobs are so important. And in response to him, we said, what we need to do is to invite young people to rebuild, redefine, and re-spirit the city from the ground up. And we began a kind of visionary organizing, which is what is necessary at this time. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole idea of recognizing that as the world falls apart, the opportunity for visionary organizing expands. Mm-hmm. So tell me, <clears throat> give me some examples of what, what give me some examples of what you see those young people doing. That doesn't get the publicity that the building of casinos gets. Well, I mean, gets. when you look at the educational crisis, for example, on the one hand, you have George W. Bush and Obama and Annie Duncan proposing the race to the top and no child left behind and more standardized testing, which leads to all sorts of cheating and so forth and so on. On the other hand, you see some other people saying, what we need is community-based education. What we need is to give our young opportunity, young people an opportunity to solve the problems of their communities and to bring their creative energies to bear on those problems, which will not only help to solve the problem of the community, but also help them grow their souls mm-hmm. instead of their grades. You're right. And are there models for that happening in Detroit? Oh, yes, we have a, there's a, thing, a group called the Boggs Educational Collective, which is projecting place-based education. Mm-hmm. It's a concept which John Dewey projected back in the 90s and up to 1953, just before he died. And it's been lost. Right. Some of these things are about rediscovery, aren't they? Some, mm-hmm. some of the progress... See, everything, we have so much to rediscover. Mm-hmm. There's so, so many creative energies that are part of human history that have been lost because we've been suing the almighty dollar. We haven't recognized at what expense mm-hmm. we've done that. The expense not only of the earth, not only of people of color, but of our own souls. Mm-hmm. We no longer recognize that we have the capacity within us to create the world anew. Mm -hmm. We think we are only the victims. So if I ask you where your philosophy of that, of what the new world looks like, where does that come from? How How do you envision that? Well, it comes from a lot of things. It comes from having been born a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> and it comes from having been born female. 
It comes from having decided to study philosophy. It comes from really, I think, understanding how the French Revolution created a kind of democracy, but also robbed us of a great deal. It alienated us from our labor. It made us dependent upon technology. It made us think that economics is more important than our relationships with one another. They're all terrible things that happened to us. <laughs> but we have now the opportunity to rediscover who we are. Mm-hmm. I've been... Um, when I read you, I... I read you talking about models of activism, uh, m- models of successful activism that have inspired you across your lifetime. Some of them people who are not famous in the larger culture. Um, a. Philip Randolph. Uh, I wonder if you would talk about you know, him and other people like that who for you have been prophets uh, and icons of what we might recover and move towards? Well, in 1941, I was working for $10 a week in the (laughs) philosophy library of the University of Chicago. I had got my PhD the year before, but $10 a week didn't allow me to live very luxuriously. In fact, I was living rent-free in a basement And one of the disadvantages was that I had to face down a barricade of rats in order to get to the basement. And that put me in touch with the black community, which was also facing rat infested housing. It was July 1941, and A. Philip Randolph was calling upon blacks to march on Washington to demand jobs in defense industries because the Depression had ended for white workers, but not for black workers. And when Franklin Roosevelt heard about the march, he begged Randolph to call it off. Randolph refused. Mrs. Roosevelt begged him to call off the march. Randolph refused. And eventually, FDR issued Executive Order 8002, banning discrimination in defense plans for blacks. That changed the life of blacks, and that made me decide I was going to become a movement activist. Oh. I didn't know what was going to happen. <laughs> I've been so fortunate. Who, who else? Who else comes to mind as... You know, I just... Have you ever heard of Walter Brueggemann? Have you heard of him? He's a theologian. I'm sorry. Didn't Walter you? Brueggemann. Walter Brueggemann is a theologian of the prophets who prophets are. And I just have that. I've just done an interview with him. And it's, 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 uh, so I have that on my mind. But I wonder if I ask you, you know, who have you seen as prophets in, in your lifetime? Who, el- who else comes to mind for you? <coughs> Jimmy Boggs. Mm-hmm. Malcolm X, 
Martin Luther King. Those are the three prophets in my life. Mm-hmm. Another one is Margaret Wheatley. Really? Uh, say something. I, I know who Margaret Wheatley is, but um, say something a, about how she's she's supposed to come here last weekend. Yeah. Uh, but she got pneumonia and oh. she didn't come. So we created a program without her. But she, one of the most wonderful things about Margaret Wheatley is that she has pointed out how Newtonian science and scientific rationalism has made us think of life and reality as made up of particles. And quantum physics gives us the opportunity to look at change in a very different way, mm-hmm. not in terms of mass, but in terms of organic connections and of emerging changes, of changes that take place at a lower level so that at a mass level they have more permanence mm-hmm. and more reality. I like that distinction, right. Yeah, but it takes time, that, doesn't it? Right. Doesn't it take time? You know, what I notice in this culture is when we look at something like Occupy Wall Street or Arab Spring, uh, the minute it seems to falter, then, then its demise is predicted. And, but this view of reality says things get set in motion New narratives. They bubble along. They fail because whatever human beings do has ups and downs and learns. But it's a a process, right? That's right. Uh It's always becoming. Being is always becoming. Yeah. Yeah, Margaret Wheatley. Does she call herself a philosopher or what is her, what is her training? Margaret Wheatley. Uh, oh, she has a doctorate. Right? Yeah, I know. I've been there. reading her for years. This is her book. So, in terms of these words like being and becoming, you've also spoken about movements that way, sustainable movements, the movements of the future, um, as movements of being rather than, or that, uh, so, well, let me take it. Let me go another way with that. Um, I think you've talked about about actually our human, the human development as moving towards being rather than having. <laughs> um, but I do want to talk to you about how your sense of what movements are, what makes a movement, uh, how that how that is different now, or what. what uh, is it, is it different? Do you have a different sense of what a successful movement will look like in 2012 than it looked in 1962 or 1972? Well, you know, I think we've been very fortunate in the 20th century to have experienced the movements of the 30s, yeah. then the movements of the 60s, and now the movements of the first decade of the 21st century. I don't think any other generation has had that privilege. But there's something about people beginning to seek solutions by doing things for themselves, by deciding they are going to create new concepts 
of economy, new concepts of governance, new concepts of education, and that they have the capacity within themselves to do that, Mm -hmm. that we have that capacity to create the world anew. You don't hear people saying that very much. They they they, They think of soul as a thing rather than as a potential, Mm. as a capacity. And we have had that great privilege of the 20th century and the 21st to see how people have responded to crises by creating movements, by creating a whole new narrative of what it is to be a human being. And are you also saying that... It may, it's not always about needing to create a mass movement and wait for those leaders to emerge. But it's also about starting where you are, where you live. And recognizing that it's not you, but it's what's happening with people. That, that, I mean, if you lived in Detroit or if you came to Detroit more often, you would be absolutely amazed at the people who start to create solutions to everyday problems and in doing so create movements. Mm-hmm. Right. And that that's how it starts. I mean, did we kind of forget that in the 20th century with all these large movements that seemed Yeah, I think there? so. I think people have thought that... They have been seduced by size. Yeah, right. By they've been seduced by the idea of the mass media. They haven't realized that from very small changes that people make from their beliefs in themselves and what they can do, huge changes emerge. Mm-hmm. That it's those that start on a small level that really give sustenance to the mass movement. And was that always true? Did we stop I don't seeing know that? that was always okay. true or not. Yeah. But I know that we've had the great fortune to experience that. In Detroit. In Detroit and, and in this country. Yeah. I just, oh, there's a clock. Okay, I just want to make sure. Um, okay, well, let's do it now then. All right. No more talking until he's changed better. This is obviously uh, an hour behind Kristen. <laughs> I'm just looking at where it is in the hour. Thank you. Um, but what was my I had something on my mind oh I know okay okay so we'll just go for about ten ten more minutes ten more minutes okay okay So to that point of, of the power of what is local and organic, it's occurred to me that, uh, that there's kind of a paradox of technology and globalization that, in fact, it empowers what is local in a new way. Do you... That, 
that technology and globalization seem seem uh, you know create this larger than ever landscape but they also empower what is they they give new tools to what is local yeah i think globalization is the great satan which has helped us to think that the local is more important than the global that there's a sense that one can, one's humanity can be lost in the global. Like the global has reminded, has forced people to remember their their local identities. So, so how has this great Satan worked? How? Well, what it did, for example, it outsourced jobs. Yeah. So it forced us to ask ourselves. Are jobs the answer? Are they the solution? Or are they the problem? And we were able then to think more deeply about what it means to be a human being, which is really the fundamental question of philosophy. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to be a human being? And how have we been seduced by material things and by economic growth to abandon our humanity? How damaged have we become? And how can we recover our humanity by recognizing that damage and to see the revolution not as getting more things, but as recognizing how much we have to transform ourselves? And um, I think it's very... You you are demonstrating also and talk about the role of ideas and the, of the intellectual mm-hmm. of, of pointing people back to those large questions that emerge from concrete experiences. Yeah, well, what's so interesting is that I, I never knew when I became a philosopher or that I became an intellectual that it would have a kind of meaning. In fact, when I joined the radical movement, it was like, like a you weren't supposed to be intellectual. You were supposed to be active. You were supposed to be organizing all the time. Right. And I think that the many radicals have have not recognized the power of ideas. And I've been very fortunate that I've loved ideas and that ideas have changed me and that just by expressing my ideas, people have recognized something in themselves. And I think this is, it's countercultural in, in a, on every side of this, right? Because uh, it's not just that activists may be focused on... Uh, practice uh, above all else. It's also that one of the responses that a lot of young people are having to economic crisis, you know, is to get a business major, right? To, to be as, you know, people feel compelled to be as practical as possible. <laughs> uh, I'm not against being practical. Right. What I'm against is saying that philosophers have only contemplated the world. 
you have to change it. I think you can change it by your ideas. As well. As as those things working in concert. One of the interesting um, distinctions you make, I think, is that it's important to for change agents to know the difference between the possible and the necessary? You know, Hegel has a section on necessity and possibility and actuality. And I think for a long time we radicals thought that it was only the necessary that was important, that we had to, the change had to come out of necessity. And the the idea of possibility is so much more complex, so much richer, offers so much more opportunity for imagination and creativity. Mm -hmm. So I love the concept of the possible. But maybe for passionate people, uh, focusing, uh, you know, uh, there's a compromise involved in, in letting go of the necessary as the only thing to work on, right? I mean, what do you have to let... Mm. To focus on the possible means you, you may have to let go of some of your absolutes, Right. Well, you know, our, when the um, you remember the Battle of Seattle in 1999, mm-hmm. out of it came the World Social Forum, which started out in Porto Alegre, Brazil. And the concept that another world is necessary, another world is possible, and then we began to say another world is actually happening in Detroit. I mean, to see that the necessary, the possible, and the actual are all part of history and that we grasp onto each of these, but that the possible demands most of us, Mm. demands our our creativity. Right. Demands our imagination. It demands imagination as much as knowledge. It Uh, it demands what we don't yet know as much as what we already know. know. Of course, what, what Einstein said that the splitting of the atom changed everything but the human mind, and therefore we drift toward catastrophe. Mm. And then he also said imagination is more important than knowledge. He recognized that knowledge is what has happened, whereas imagination begins to open up what can happen, what you can make happen. And so I want to ask you, again, the hard question, I think. Do people come back to you in a place like Detroit, in an inner city, an American inner city, and say, what good is imagination when people can't eat, when they don't have roofs over their heads? Well, what's happening in Detroit is is amazing. Out of the needs that that people have, some people are responding. They are creating the opportunity for us to help one another. 
There's an amazing movement that started here in Detroit, for example. It's called Riverside East Congregational Initiatives. Church people are coming together to turn their churches not into just huge places where you pay terrible utility bills, <laughs> but places where people can come to be safe, to help one another, to begin thinking about how to build community and how to create new forms of work. That's a possibility. Mm-hmm. You can't find that out by knowledge. You can only find that out by using your imagination. Mm-hmm. You also write a lot about the gardens, mm-hmm. the gardening in, in the, new, the new Detroit. And that, that was the most amazing thing. When most people looked at vacant lots and saw only dead cats and old mattresses and rubber tires, and these women, particularly who had been raised down south and had grown food, calling themselves the gardening angels. The gardening angels, yeah. The gardening angels began to connect with young people and show them what it was like to grow gardens and grow food and reconnected young people with the earth with a whole new way of thinking about life and culture. Uh, What does the word hope mean for you as a philosopher, as an activist? Well, you know, we have in Detroit what we call the city of hope, Richard Feldman, who was back there, created the term in 207. 207 was the 40th anniversary of Martin Luther King's speech about a radical revolution of values. 207 was also the 40th anniversary of the rebellion here in Detroit. And we called some meetings to commemorate those dates. And we found that people were beginning to do things themselves, that they were creating hope for themselves. And so we called Detroit a city of hope. And that began to change the way we looked at reality and Detroiters looked at themselves. Mm. It's wonderful what naming something can do. Yes. Well... Religiously, it's the original creative act, naming. (laughs) Naming, right. Mm -hmm. To have to name Detroit as a city of hope, to say that our our right, our duty, is to shake the world with a new dream, to rebuild, redefine, and respirit our city. That's a wonderful message to be able to carry. Mm -hmm. I think that's your last word. Is there anything else you want to say? Anything I haven't asked you? Thank you. Oh, well, Grace Boggs, thank you so much. Yeah. (laughs) What a treat. Yeah. Rick, want to talk a little about Detroit? Krista, thank you. Oh, look at you. How are you doing? What are you doing here? What are you doing here? 
He shows up anytime. I mean, he I showed see, up. I see him every other Saturday at the market. <laughs> you should interview him about his bees. His bees. See what you, what did get captured? I don't know. If <laughs> I know a lot didn't get captured. No, no, but there's just just one part. Yeah. Because you asked Grace for the models. Yeah. And you didn't get much of a response. I don't know if you want any more. But yeah, I was making a whole list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she didn't give me. You didn't. You didn't. Add, you, you didn't. You, you didn't have. You didn't take the time to respond to the models that are emerging of feed and freedom of the project house. You did mention the East Side Church. He's, you're going to show them. You know, so you I don't know what? what we can do. What can well, you do? What we can do is. What can you do? What we can I'm do sorry. is. No, no, it's okay. What we can do is you send us that list with website links. And I will, in the radio show, say, we got a bunch of other models for you to learn about. Okay? I have it outside for you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, we got time. Okay? He's one of them. He's the B-man. Yeah, no, that's, yeah. that's, that's great. Yeah. That's great. We'll He's do wonderful. that. It's really okay. cool listening to you. It's really great. Yeah, I'm so glad we did this. I, I'm so glad we didn't do it on the phone. Yeah. I, I wanted to be here. So what time is your appointment? Um, we, we, we're okay until... One o'clock, I think, yeah, or think yeah. So we can. Yeah. I I actually have to, to check out at noon. Early. I didn't, yeah. but um. So. Are you downtown? We're just close by. No, we're, we're at Ferry Street. Yeah. Street. Yeah. Well, two possibilities. If you have the time. We got time. Um, one is to to uh, 